Welcome to episode 181 of This Week in Linux, recorded live on January 15th, 2022. From the Destination Linux Network, I'm Michael Tunnell. If you're new to the show, this is the podcast that will keep you up to date with what's going on in the Linux world, and I'll give you my take as a 20-year-plus Linux user. On this week's episode, we have some distro news, gaming news, and even some hardware news. All of this and so much more coming up right now on your weekly source for Linux Good News. This episode is sponsored by DigitalOcean and by Bitwarden. Before we get started this week, I wanted to talk to you about the new the visuals that we have right now on the show. So for episode 180, I decided to flip the visuals from the previous style, and I was going to switch it back for this episode, but I got a lot of comments that people liked the flip better, and I was curious what everybody thought who weren't aware that I was doing that. And I'd like for you to check it out, episode 178, and compare it to today's episode. And I have a poll that's on the YouTube channel, as well as a poll on the uh, DLN forum. I'll have that linked in the show notes if you want to vote there. Uh, Please let me know what you think, and uh, we'll see if we go back to the previous one or just keep the flip. I also want to let you know that the logo contest for the Linux Out Loud podcast is still going on right now. If you want to send in submissions for your entry to win a $100 gift card. So uh, this is actually going to be, uh, I have a link in the show notes for the forum thread related to this to get more details and how to send in the the logos. Uh, But this is a renaming of DLN Extend podcast into Linux Out Loud. So if you'd like to participate and potentially win a $100 gift card, please do so. I'll have the links in the show notes. And the last thing I wanted to tell you about is there's a new show on the Designation Linux Network called Linux Saloon. This is essentially a virtual lug that everybody is invited to join. And you can hang out on the stream or just in the live chat. You can participate in the in the in the, the episodes. You can you can actually participate in the chat room or on the video itself in the discussion. And that is the Linux Saloon. It happens every Saturday night at 8 p.m. Eastern, and it is the first episode for this show is starting tonight. January 15th at 8 p.m. Eastern. If you miss it for this episode, that's okay. If you're like listening to this show later in the week, uh, don't worry. It's going to happen again next Saturday. So join us then. And also there's going to be a logo contest for the new podcast of Linux Saloon as well. So if you want to participate in that, you'll find more information in the show notes below. First in the show this week, let's talk about a new piece of hardware that is available to pre-order right now. Actually, it's you can order it right now, just the shipping won't start just yet, but pretty soon. And that is the PinePhone Pro Explorer Edition from Pine64. That's right, the successor to the PinePhone uh, Linux smartphone. This one actually is going to be a lot more powerful because it's the Pro Edition, naturally. It will cost a little bit more. It's going to be costing $399 uh, on the Pine Store. And you will also be able to get a lot of extra add-ons that were already made for the PinePhone to be working with the PinePhone Pro. So if you were to get the keyboard add-on or the different cases and stuff, it's all going to be uh, working in terms of being compatible with the new phone as well. Plus, you also get a more RAM. You get 4 gigabytes of RAM. Also, 128 gigabytes of eMMC storage. Also, the supports up to 2 terabytes with a micro SD card. And it's a 6-inch in-cell IPS capacitive touchscreen with a 1440 by 720 resolution. And it has a 3.5 millimeter uh, audio jack, which is also known as the Courage Jack, because some devices don't seem to have it for some reason, but in this case, it does. There's also an upgrade for the cameras on this latest version. This one has a that basically the, the rear-facing camera that was on the 
uh, last phone is now the front-facing camera on this phone, and the rear-facing camera is also a much uh, more uh, much more p- p- megapixels and all that stuff. For it's a Sony IMX two fifty eight for the rear camera. So this phone will ship with a pre-beta build of Manjaro with Plasma Mobile. So it's not really meant for everyone. It's more along the lines for Linux developers, since there's still a lot to work to be done to make just the phone more usable for the average user. Uh, it also depends on the software. So they have a note saying that this, you know, this particular phone is not implying that it's going to be a daily driver, depending on what you need. So if you have special uh, special apps that you are required to you know do your daily activities on your phone and they're not available on the pine phone then there's you know they're not trying to tell you that it's a full replacement for android which is i I think is fantastic because there there is another company that will be uh remain nameless that likes to claim that it's a replacement to android and iphone and it's not even remotely a replacement so i really I really appreciate the fact that Pine64 is upfront about that. Uh, so for those who are interested in checking out the PinePhone Pro, if you order before uh, January 18th, you should get it shipped by the end of the month. And if you order after January 18th, then the shipments will be uh, more expected around the end of February instead. So it depends on just when you have the chance to order it. Uh, this also, the, real quick, this has the same features that the previous phone does and just has more. So it does have removable battery. It does have privacy switches and all that stuff. So it's just a better, more improved version of the Pine phone, which is awesome. And while it is technically for developers, I did order one because while I'm not a developer in the you know, the technical definition of that. I still want to play with it, so I'm going to get it anyway. So I'll let you know what my experience is, and maybe I'll make a video on it. We'll see. If you'd like to learn more about this or order one for yourself, links in the show notes. Up next in the show, we have an interesting app to talk about. So if you are a GNOME user, this might be some interest to you. This is the Extension Manager app. It's a native tool for browsing, installing, and managing GNOME Shell extensions. It's written with GTK4 and libadweta. It has uh, features like browsing and searching extensions from extensions.gnome.org, the installation of those extensions, enabling and disabling the extensions, and also uninstalling them. It doesn't have functions for a couple things that they are working. It's on their roadmap, for example, updating extensions inside of the app. Uh, there's not there's not really screenshots or images to see what it does before or access to ratings and comments yet. They do have those planned to be worked on, uh, but they're not available just yet. So if you want to, if you don't know what the extension is, uh, you will still need to go to extensions.gnome.org to see what the extensions do and to see those kind of like comments and things like that. Uh, but what's cool about this is that that will be a, a, a goal to have those functionalities. So you wouldn't even need to go to the website to get the access to see everything. Because right now, it's kind of wonky in order to set up extensions because you have to install a browser extension to make it connect with a thing, or you have to go to the GNOME software, which has a similar problem, but it's even less uh, discoverable. And, you know, it's really nice to see that people are working on improving this. And if you are interested in checking it out, you can get it as a flat pack. So it's a lot easier to set up and get started with this extension manager. And I'll have a link to it in the show notes below. 
So a little while back, System76 announced that they're going to be making a new desktop environment based on the Rust programming language called Cosmic. It's essentially going to be a rebuild of what their current development is for their desktop environment, where that's basically a GNOME stack with some stuff sitting on top, and they're going to be rebuilding their own desktop environment with this uh, same similar workflow. Now, System76 objective seems to be to create something that is faster and more customizable than the GNOME desktop environment. Uh, but this is, you know, this is pretty far away. We're probably going to be somewhere about the next year when we actually see it as a an option to be used uh, in terms of like actual st releases. Uh, but there was a software developer named Eduardo Flores who decided to go hands-on with early development versions of several Cosmic components. And for those who are curious, you can check out the blog post in the show notes to see the progress so far about what's happening with Cosmic. I think it's really interesting. Uh, it's definitely, it's a great read of blog post if you're interested in what's going to happen. And the Cosmic desktop is still a work in progress, and it's not ready for use, of course. Most of what is in this preview is, you know, subject to change and that sort of thing. But uh, Carl Richel, the System76 CEO, has unveiled a possible release date for Cosmic on Twitter. Uh, well, a rough release date, saying that the release will build come out sometime in 2023, but it's currently scheduled to have maybe like an alpha build this summer. So I'm looking forward to trying it out, even with an alpha stage, because, you know, I want to play with Cosmic too. But if you'd like to learn more about this, I'll have a link to the blog post from Eduardo, as well as some links to the previous times we talked about it on This Week in Linux, as well as Destination Linux in the show notes. This episode of This Week in Linux is brought to you by DigitalOcean. Now is the perfect time to dive into the DigitalOcean. With their new app platform service, it helps you build modern cloud-native apps for way less money. With the app platform, you can build, deploy, scale apps, and static websites faster and easier than ever before by using a simple, intuitive interface. You simply point the app platform to your GitHub or your GitLab repository and let it do all of the heavy lifting. Whether you're using Node.js, Python, Go, PHP, Ruby, static sites, Docker, and container images, all of this stuff is supported on app platform, and it can handle all the heavy lifting just by pointing it to those repos. And by running the app platform on their infrastructure, DigitalOcean keeps your costs significantly lower than with other products. Plus, it's built on top of DigitalOcean's Kubernetes, which provides a smoother migration path so you can take more control of your infrastructure setup. And as a listener of the This Week in Linux podcast and a member of the DLN community, you can get started for free. Actually, better than free, because DigitalOcean is going to give you a $100 free credit when you go to do.co slash DLN. Again, go to do.co slash DLN to get started with your $100 free credit on DigitalOcean's new app platform. I want to thank DigitalOcean for sponsoring this episode of This Week in Linux. Up next in the show, we're going to talk about Slackware because Slackware Linux has been gearing up toward a new stable release for a while now. The project has announced a new and final release candidate, which is Slackware Linux 15.0 RC3. They say that Slackware 15 is 99% frozen at this point and are mostly looking for regression and other bug reports that might make the uh, stuff more stable that they have frozen. They're going to be based on 5.15.15 kernel. Uh, and also, if you want more details about this, we're going to talk about more details in general when the final version is released. But we also talked about Slackware and the history of Slackware, which I think is really interesting in the latest episode of Destination Linux, episode 260. It's a we it's a episode is titled A Retrospective Look at Classic Linux Distros. So we talk about Slackware, SUSE, Red Hat, Debian, and even some more. So if you want to check that out, I have a link to the show notes below 
uh, in the show notes below for Destination Linux episode 260, as well as Slackware's latest news about their distribution, if you're interested. Up next in the show, the Linux Mint team have announced a partnership with Mozilla. Now, this is interesting because Mint say that Firefox will continue to be distributed as a dev package through this official, uh, the official Linux Mint repositories, but the way the browser is built will change. Previously, Linux Mint shipped with uh, Mozilla Firefox as its default web browser, but it's a customized version of Firefox. It has changes in the settings and the ser- different search engines. The start pages are different from the regular you know, vanilla type of Firefox. Uh, with this deal, most of these things are going to be changed or removed. Uh, for example, the start page will no longer point to linuxmint.start or linuxmint.com slash start. Uh, Google becomes the default search engine again. There will be other search engine options, but they're going to be Mozilla partners instead of Mint partners. Uh, there are also the default settings will now be set by Mozilla directly. Uh, there will be no patches outside of the upstream, and the app will use the default Firefox icon going forward. Uh, Clem from Linux Mint, he's the project lead of Linux Mint, says that for Mozilla, the goal is to make Firefox work the same way across all platforms to ease maintenance and simplify development and bug fixing. With these changes, Firefox will give the same experience in Linux Mint as it does in other operating systems. Now, Mint does make some modifications, and I think they still will have to do something along the lines because they have this new... uh, rounded corners approach with a new mint Y theme. So there might be some tweaking, but it looks like it won't be a patch to Firefox directly. Uh, And I think that what Clem is saying is really, really interesting because Mozilla had announced that they were going to be making the snap of of Firefox uh, with Canonical, and that would essentially make it so that Canonical slash Ubuntu wouldn't have to make a dev file which would be good for distributions who want to use snaps, but not good for those who don't because then there would be no one making the dev file at that point. So I'm not sure if this partnership with Linux Mint will lead to more distributions shipping that dev file, uh, in that dev package anyway, uh, or not. But I think it'd be really interesting to see what happens here. If you'd like to learn more about this, I'll have links in the show notes below. Speaking of Firefox, Firefox 96 has been released, and it has significantly reduced the amount of load that is placed on the browser's main thread to improve their performance significantly. Uh, They also made some improvements in the noise suppression and auto gain control, as well as uh, slight improvements in the echo cancellation to provide with better overall experience for the media capture and streams API, which is used inside of WebRTC, to improve services that use WebRTC like Jitsi and other things like that. There is also an improved uh, cookie policy to reduce the likelihood of cross-site request forgery attacks or CSRV at- or RF attacks. Uh, also, they have enabled by default the Weblocks API and many, many more things. So if you're interested, I'll have a link in the show notes for more about Web- Firefox 96. There's also some interesting news that came out with Firefox that's not so um, ideal, and that is a bug that was found. The HPP, HTTP3 bug caused a web page loading to stall, and in some cases, the Firefox users wouldn't be able to use the, the browser until they had it, that it was fixed or made some changes. But that stuff has all been addressed. It has been fixed. It was fixed really quickly within like a couple hours. Uh, and then all you need, if you're still having issues with it, all you need to do is restart and that's it. Now, not everyone was affected by this bug, but those who were, well, 
they had an interesting and confusing day on Thursday uh, because the uh, Fire Mozilla team res, uh, responded with this uh, a tweet saying that earlier today, Firefox became unresponsive due to a change in defaults by a cloud provider, which triggered a Firefox HTTP 3 bug. We disabled the configuration change and confirmed this fixed. Uh, this did fix the issue. Now, there were some reports. The reason why it's on the show is because it's kind of a little bit of a drama thing is that there were some reports that it was related to Firefox data collection, but that's kind of true and also not really true. The server, the, the data collection had nothing to do with actually causing the bug. It was because the data collection servers used HTTP 3 in order to do the service, so that's how they found the bug. They discovered it through the data collection, but it wasn't caused by the data collection. This could have happened trying to connect to any HTTP 3 service. Though it is worth noting that HTTP 3 is not that widespread yet, so it, you know, it could have taken longer for it to happen. But either way, this wasn't good news for Firefox users, and as a Firefox user myself, I was not hit by the bug directly. But if I had been for hours, I saw some people talking about maybe this might be a... a an incentive for people to switch to a different browser because if you can't use your browser for no apparent reason, then you'd you'd switch likely. And I don't know what I would have done. I probably would have loaded up Vivaldi or something else, but I don't know. Luckily, I didn't get hit by it. And if you did, that is why the issue happened. Uh, if you'd like to learn more about it, I'll have links in the show notes. So we're going to go from one topic about an accidental bug to another topic that is an intentional bug. So it seems that a developer has decided to sabotage their own product, uh, projects, an open source JavaScript libraries for colors.js and faker.js, which are Node.js Node types of NPM related packages. So they're simple programs that uh, allow you to color text and also uh, create fake data for testing. Now, faker.js is used with more than 2,500 other NPM programs and is downloaded 2.4 million times per week. Colors.js is built into almost 19,000 other NPM packages and is downloaded 23 million times per week. So it's, it's fair to say that it's a significantly used package. Uh, and this week, people started seeing weird gibberish text being outputted by these modules. At first, people suspected the modules were compromised, but it turned out that the creator who, committed, who created these, uh, these, pro these modules had committed these uh, changes themselves. This isn't the first time that an NPM package was deliberately sabotaged by its developer either. It also happened in 2016 for another package. And as far as I can tell, there isn't an official statement as to why the developer decided to do it. But there are people speculating based on previous blog posts and GitHub comments and things like that uh, related to uh, seemingly not being compensated for uh, the work being done on these modules. So in a now deleted uh, GitHub post, the developer said, I'm no longer going to support Fortune 500s or other smaller sized companies with my free work. There isn't much else to say. Take this as an opportunity to send me a six-figure yearly contract or fork the project and have someone else work on it. Now, this is, um, this is interesting in many ways. Uh, first of all, open source software is critical to today's society. At this point, you can almost guarantee that most, if not all, software relies on something open source somewhere. Maybe it's a library, maybe it's build service or something else. So I think it's, it's, it is awful that open source developers are not being compensated by massive corporations that are benefiting off the back of the work by these developers. And I don't know what could be done to address this, but I do hope that something changes to help them fund the development of these types of, of software because there's a lot of critical uh, infrastructure that relies on smaller things like the 
we talked about Log4j on previous uh, uh, podcasts and stuff like that. And Log4j is one of those examples where tons of people use it, but only like three people work on it because it's, you know, in their free time kind of thing. And just you get the, a massive benefit. You should contribute in some way. Now, with that said, this is likely not an effective way to go about this change to sabotage your own project. This will probably make people think twice about ever using something else from this developer in general. So it seems like it's going to do the reverse. But this is a very interesting topic to me because it highlights a very important thing that I've talked about on this show before and on Destination Linux podcast. And that is open source software being free is an amazing benefit for those who need it to be. But for those who can afford to contribute financially but choose not to, well, that's just not sustainable. So hopefully if you're in a situation where you work for a company that uses these kinds of things and benefit from it and maybe you can convince them to contribute back in some way or if you'd just like to learn more about this particular topic, I'll have links in the show notes. This episode of This Week in Linux is brought to you by Bitwarden. Get started right now with your free account at bitwarden.com slash DLN. Bitwarden is an awesome password manager that allows you to have peace of mind knowing that your online accounts are secure. Bitwarden provides you with tools for a secured vault to store all your passwords, an auto-generator to generate passwords for you, and even automatically fill in passwords on login forms so you don't have to do any of this stuff. You can access this, your data across many different types of devices as well, such as a web browser, mobile application, desktop applications, or even on the command line. Plus, Bitwarden seals and encrypts your private data with end-to-end encryption before it ever leaves your devices, so you know you're the only person with access to your data. So go to bitwarden.com slash dealing to get started. And if you get their premium account, it starts at less than a dollar per month. That's right, less than a dollar per month will get you access to one gigabyte of encrypted file storage, two-step login with YubiKey, U2F, Duo, Bitwarden Authenticator for temporary one-time passwords, priority customer service, Bitwarden Send, so much great stuff, all of this for less than a dollar per month. So make the smart move like many of the community have and go to bitwarden.com slash DLN to get started. And thanks again to Bitwarden for sponsoring This Week in Linux. Up next in the show is an interesting topic related to a desktop environment inside of a browser. That's right. Uh, Daedal OS, I think that's how you say it, is a desktop OS that runs inside of a browser created by Dustin Brett. So this is interesting because it has tons of features, a uh, file manager, window management. You can even move and resize the windows. It's got a start menu, taskbar, uh, a dynamic animated wallpaper. Uh, it even has support for boxed wine to run Windows applications. Now, of course, it's not directly Windows, so it's not going to be running everything, but it's really interesting. And it even has the ability to run a browser inside of the browser tab. So if you want to do that for some reason... You can. Uh, it's really interesting. In the visuals, you'll see a kind of a demonstration for it. It's also really easily accessible. You just go to the website and you can play around yourself manually. Uh, I think it's really cool. And if you want to try it out for yourself, I'll have links in the show notes. So one of Sony's most popular titles that was previously a PlayStation exclusive is now available on Steam, and that is God of War. So God of War is available on Steam, and with this update, they have actually enhanced the graphics, added ultra-wide support, added support for NVIDIA's DLSS and AMD's FSR, and more. Now, the reason why it's on this show is because while you go to it and it says Windows Game, and it doesn't necessarily specify Linux support, it is playable through Proton, which is pretty awesome. So the fact that you know God of War is available to be played on, on Linux 
I just wanted to highlight that because that's pretty awesome. Uh, there are some issues with NVIDIA users, though, because uh, because of the Proton and NVIDIA, there might be a little bit of some stuttering here and there because the shader caching has not been uh, completed yet. So this should be addressed in a week or so, as reported by GamingOnLinux.com. Also, Liam from Gaming on Linux uh, said that you might find some lip-syncing voice audio itch issues that sometimes it's completely off, but it is possible to fix it by adding a Steam launch option uh, and there's also going to, I'll have a link in the show notes for the details about how to add it uh, and how do you, how do you address that with the gaming on Linux article in the show notes. And uh, while Sony isn't officially supporting Linux directly, this is still pretty awesome, you know, to have it to be available to be played on Linux. And hopefully this is the first phase of Sony seeing the light that they need to team up with Valve and Linux to battle against Microsoft in the gaming wars. Hopefully we'll see. If you'd like to learn more, or check out the game for yourself on links in the show notes. Up next in the show, we have the January update from Valve for this Steam Deck, and that is that it is on track for February shipping. So this is fantastic because that means it's not going to be another delay, which is great, and people who have pre-ordered can log in to check what their expected delivery time frame is. I did that. I checked what my, my expected delivery time frame is, and sadly for me, it seems to be not very soon. It says it's going to be after Q2 of 2022, which could mean really anything after the after quarter two. Hopefully it means it'll arrive by summer, but that could just be, you know, super vague as possible. <laughs> but work and testing on the Steam Deck verified program has been underway for a while, and we'll, we'll soon be able to see what the dif different uh, deck verified status is for, a lot, for like a growing set of games. We already have one game that like the first verified game on the steam deck stuff would be is the portal 2 uh, which is it makes sense that's the first one uh, but there's also another wave of dev kits that has gone out to developers uh, there's actually hundreds that have been sent out and there's they're saying that they're gonna be doing more as well in the meantime so there's gonna be a lot more support being added for steam deck which is really great so they're gonna people having more tests as well as uh, people uh, having more information about when they can get their own steam deck which is still gonna be probably a while I'm looking forward to it, and I can't wait, but I, I have to, unfortunately. <laughs> and if you're looking forward to it and you can't wait, you're also going to have to wait, but you can check out the links in the show notes to learn more information about the January update for the Steam Deck. So we're going from some really positive gaming topics with the God of War on, on Steam now and also the Steam Deck being uh, on track for its shipping uh, to uh, not... So great news. Um, Humble Bundle is making some changes. Uh, first of all, they're making changes to the Humble Choice monthly service, not the entire thing. Uh, but they're, they're, they're looking like they're going to be changing some stuff for the Humble Choice. Like this going to be similar to what they were doing with Humble Monthly. And that is that they're going to make it a single tier uh, at a single price rather than having the multiple tiers depending on what games you want and all that stuff. But And they're also going to be adding uh, reg more regions to the options for Humble Choice, as well as making it possible to do uh, regional pricing. So if you are in the UK, you could use pounds, or in Europe, you could use euros instead of having to do it with the uh, USD that it was previously. Now, this could be, you know, good because they're simplifying the process and simplifying the options, which in some cases can be a good thing. However, uh, there are some not so great things uh, attached to this. So Humble said that our focus is to bring you maximum bang for your buck through an expertly curated mix of awesome games. 
to the exact number of games might vary each month, but no matter what our scouts choose, our mission is to always bring you a ton of value that's well worth the price of admission. And as always, you can skip a month whenever you want or cancel any time. I mean, that is unless you're a Linux and Mac user. Okay, that part they didn't say. I added that part. But there's a reason for that. They've decided that you will need another game launcher in order to do some stuff with this uh, Humble Games collection, uh, which is basically they're taking the Humble Trove, renaming that to Humble Vault, and making it so that you need a specific game launcher to use it. And that game launcher will be Windows only. So if you're a Linux or Mac user, you will not be able to get games from the Humble Trove slash Humble Vault once they the full implementation of these changes happen, which is going to be February 1st. Uh, the Humble Store discounts are also changing. It's no longer going to be set to 10% or 20%. Instead, it's going to be based on how long you've had your subscription running. The longer you have it running, the more the discount, discount becomes. Uh, currently, it appears that this support for the Linux removal stuff is only the Trove slash Vault part. Like the Humble Choice monthly subscriptions will still be offering games that are Linux support and you know Steam downloads and that sort of stuff. It also appears that the Humble Bundles will continue to offer Linux downloads when they're you know talking about the bundles themselves uh, applicable to uh, maybe Steam keys and that stuff as well. With all that said, uh, these changes will go into effect on February 1st. So if you want any of the games that are currently in the Trove right now, you can still get them because they gave a little bit of a time frame where you... You can get them if you want to. So you have a couple of weeks to sign up and get them before they're gone. Uh, well, provided that you're a Linux user. If you're watching the show, you probably are. Uh, <laughs> and since, But since this is a Humble Bundle segment, and because I'm okay with shameless plugs, if you decide to get the Trove stuff before it goes away, or any of the bundles that are currently active, or anything from the Humble store, I would humbly ask you to use the affiliate links that are going to be in the show notes uh, for this episode. Um, if you do decide to get anything from the Humble Store. And if you'd like to learn more about this latest news related to the changes coming up with the Humble, Ch- Humble Choice uh, and also the changes for the Trove slash Vault or whatever that stuff is, I'll have links in the show notes. Thanks for watching this episode of This Week in Linux. If you like what I do here on this show, please like that smash button and be sure to subscribe. If you'd like to support the show and the channel, we have multiple ways to contribute with Patreon, sponsors, and others. You can learn more by becoming a patron by going to tuxdigital.com slash contribute. And if you do become a patron, you can join me in the during the live streams in the recording stadium to discuss stuff between topics or just hang out every week after the show in the patron-only post-show. You can also support the show by ordering the Linux is Everywhere t-shirt or the This Week in Linux shirt at dlnstore.com. There's also stuff like hats and mugs and hoodies and stickers and all kinds of stuff at dlnstore.com. In fact, we have just recently rebuilt the entire dlnstore.com. So if you haven't been there in a while, there's a lot of cool stuff. We even have uh, desk mats, which are basically mouse pads, but are gigantic, uh, which is great because that's the kind of mouse pad I prefer to use. Anyway, that's all available at dealingstore.com. And if you'd like some more podcasting goodness from me, then check out the latest episodes of Destination Linux and Hardware Addicts, as I'm a co-host of both of those shows on the Destination Linux network. And just a reminder, the show is live every Saturday at 1 p.m. Eastern or 1800 UTC. So join us in the live chat room to discuss all the latest Linux news each and every week by going to dealinglive.com. Thanks again for watching. I'm Michael Snell with the Destination Linux Network, and I'll see you next week for another episode of your weekly source for Linux GNUs.